Hey, podcast listeners, it's Mike. This week on the Upload Podcast, I've got some thoughts for you about everyone's favorite generation to hate, millennials. Plus, I'll tell you how I'm faring on my March Madness bracket and share how you can take advantage of one key trait about millennials to help you take on the big guys, those folks that have a lot more money and resources than you or I do. All right, so normally March Madness is not a great time for me. Uh, Every year, I do an exercise in futility and I fill out a bracket. I don't know if you do that, uh, if you do it with your workplace or friends or whatever. I usually do one with friends. And then I do one from a person who's from my hometown, and he does this bracket that has grown every year. So one of them, no money involved, just for the pride of, of saying you beat your friends, and that's on ESPN. The other one is kind of a custom bracket, and uh, I think this year it's got over 300, almost 400 people in it, and you pay just 10 bucks to put in a bracket. So I figure, hey, if I'm going to gamble, let me gamble small because I, I'm never going to win, right? So it's just a small price to pay to uh, to make March Madness a little more exciting. And that's basically the only reason I do it is because it makes me pay attention to the games and actually care about who wins other than my favorite team, which of course is the Michigan Wolverines. As of the time I'm recording this, we're still doing great. Just beat Louisville. Uh, Very excited about that. This year though was a little bit different for me with my bracket. I somehow did fantastic. So at the end of the first round, there are 32 games in what I consider round one. I think round one is now the game of four, but regardless, the first real round has 32 games. This year, I went 31 for 32. For me, that's unheard of. For most people, that's unheard of, to be honest with you. If you're not familiar with brackets, it's not easy to pick 31 out of 32 college basketball games because they can go any which way. And so I was really excited about it. And honestly, the only difference this year is that I chose to use a technique that I learned at work uh, for forecasting. So maybe that's cheating. Maybe it's just being smart. I'm not sure. I'm not sure which at this point, but uh, it seems to have actually worked. And we'll see if in in future years it continues to work. But I thought I'd just share it with you. So what I did um, is I created a baseline. So if you don't know anything about forecasting, it's all about how do we predict the future and how do we try to uncover what the most likely scenario is, what the most likely outcome is going to be. When you don't have good information and you don't have a lot of data, which you don't in March Madness, despite what people try to say, they, they try to run all sorts of data and numbers and people pay crazy money to look at research. A lot of times it amounts to nothing. The important thing is, though, to try to establish a baseline and then go from there. So what I did was I knew that one sports commentator, his name's Jay Billis, he tends to be a really analytical guy. He tends to really think things through based on statistics. And so I thought, hey, let me see if I can find out who his picks were, and I'll use his picks as my baseline. So I did. I found uh, someone had summarized his picks, at least in the Sweet 16 and on. So I was able to backtrack and see what that would mean for his picks in the first round. So I didn't have perfect information, but I at least knew who he had picked for the Sweet 16. Now, I didn't just copy his bracket. What I did was I used that as my baseline. And I said, this is someone who has followed college basketball all year and in previous years. He knows his stuff. He uses a lot of statistics. He uses ones about uh, people's defense, ones about their scoring percentage, all sorts of things he throws into the mix to come up with his predictions. And I noticed that with his predictions, he also uses prior years and says teams that have these attributes do this well when they hit the tournament. So for me, uh, that was a perfect baseline to start with. And so I did. 
And I, I made little tweaks based on some things that I thought were important. And that's a key in forecasting. So if you've ever done forecasting before, once you have your baseline, then you adjust based on things that you think are important. So I adjusted for teams that had home court advantage sometimes or teams that I saw had done really well at the end of the season and seemed to be hitting their stride at the right time. And so I just made some little tweaks. So I don't know. Is that what caused me to have a bracket that was fantastic in round one? Time will tell because I'll try the same technique next year. But I think it's probably related because, honestly, it is the way that people do forecasting when they have limited information. So that one's for free. That's actually not the topic of today's podcast, but I'll just throw it out there for you. Uh, If you want next year or in a different fantasy pool, that type of thing, try establishing a baseline and then making adjustments based on actual data that you do have. Might actually help. That one's for free. I'll just pass it along. What I have been working on that uh, I thought would be interesting to share in the podcast today is I spent a few days last week researching millennials. And so if you aren't familiar with millennials, you must have been hiding under a rock. Everybody talks about millennials. If you've done anything with business, all you hear about is millennials all the time. So millennials were born, uh, the U.S. Census at least defines it as from 1982 to the year 2000. So if you were born in that range, you're a millennial. So that makes me technically a millennial. I'm on the far range of it. So I'm an old millennial. Uh, But if you were born before 1982, and that makes you a Gen Xer. And then of course, there's the baby boomers and the silent generation before them as well. Well, there is a ton of stuff out there about millennials, partly because they are very vocal and out there and uh, people just find them interesting, partly also because they are a huge part of the marketplace now. And so if you're running a business or you're selling a service, you'd better know some things about millennials because they are your main source of income at this point, uh, depending on your business. If you're going at the masses, they are the masses. So there's also a lot of myths about millennials. Uh, People tend to call them lazy, entitled, impatient, weak. You might be nodding your head right now going, yeah, they are all of those things. And I don't blame you. Honestly, if you're just going based on anecdotal evidence, then uh, you might think that are just a couple millennials that you know, or people you've observed. We've all met people like that. But what a lot of research tells us, and this is research that I found while I was working, is that a lot of the myths aren't true. Just first of all, when you actually look at real research, there are some traits that are true, but a lot of the more harsh ones just really aren't. A lot of those are really just more based on being young. So Gen Xers were that way. Baby boomers were that way when they were young. Uh, There's a lot of that. There's also a lot of millennials just tend to represent culture today. So they tend to be the front edge, the leading edge of big cultural forces. So when we say millennials are impatient, you can actually just look at any other generation. They're becoming impatient as well. It's not that Gen Xers and baby boomers are extremely patient. It's that Millennials are leading the way in the shift of culture towards impatience or being more demanding, however you want to define it. But um, one of the things I wanted to do is just get down to the bottom of what is actually true about millennials. What's some real statistics? What are some real insights that people who have um, PhDs and things like that, when they're doing the research, what do they find about millennials and what does that mean? So at work, uh, I was doing that to learn about the millennial learner and how we could design learning experiences to better cater to a millennial learner, to better assist them in learning, to appeal to them more, all of that. But uh, I think that I found some things that are applicable to anybody. 
especially to people who have side hustles, freelancers, creative entrepreneurs. I think all of us could benefit from knowing some things about millennials. Now, one of the things that is extremely frustrating for anybody who's trying to work with millennials in a business setting is that they can come across as extremely disloyal. Like they have very little loyalty. So HR professionals struggle with it because they, they seem to switch jobs very quickly. They don't stick around very long. People who sell things get frustrated because they think they've built up some brand loyalty with millennials and then they just switch and they'll go to a service. So if, if they love Uber one minute, they all of a sudden love Lyft the next, that type of thing. The truth is, I think, though, that that challenge actually creates a really interesting opportunity, something that we can take advantage of, especially as a little guy. But first, before I jump into that, I do want to just give a little bit fuller picture of millennials, and I want to share with you some statistics that I came up with that I just think are interesting. I think they'll give you a better picture of who the millennials are, and, uh, and then we can jump back into how do we take advantage of that seeming disloyalty that millennials have. So the first is, I mentioned it before, millennials are huge. So at this point, millennials are the largest generation. They just recently passed baby boomers. So there's 83.1 million millennials in the U.S. versus 75.4 baby boomers. That's of as of 2014. The interesting thing is not only are millennials the largest generation, they're actually the most diverse generation now too. 44.2% of millennials are a minority race. 44.2. So that means less than 66% of the millennial population in the U.S. is white. And if you've looked at uh, previous statistics, it is much higher towards white in previous generations. So this is a very diverse generation. This is a generation that has grown up with diversity in their schools, in their friendship groups, all of that. And that impacts the way that they live their life. Uh, one medical journal shared this interesting statistics. I just have to share this one with you because this gets at what a lot of people are frustrated with millennials about. The statistic is that two-thirds of millennials predict that they will perform in the top 20% of their population in, in their adult job. So two-thirds, 66% of millennials, believe that they're going to be in the top 20% of the workforce. That's not even just within their own generation. That's 20% of the workforce. So obviously, if you can do the math in your head, you realize that that's statistically impossible. There's no way that two-thirds of millennials are going to be the top 20% of performers in their job. But that's the confidence that they have. So a lot of people try to explain where that comes from, you know, ribbons for everybody, all that kind of thing. I think there's a variety of sources. There's a lot of things you could blame it on. But the important thing, the key insight is to know that millennials, if they're your audience or they are your user, they're very confident. They're very confident, confident in their skills and very confident that they will be successful. There's also some statistics that I studied as part of uh, looking into them as a learner that they lack confidence and need a lot of feedback sometimes. But in general, in the long term, they're very confident about the prospects for their life and where they're headed. They just near term lack confidence a little bit and need guidance in things and need someone to give them direct feedback and support them on a path. Confusing, right? Well, that's just how we all are. And that's that. That's the world we live in. We're going to have to learn to deal with it. And I would say that people who focus on things like this and try to understand their user, try to understand the generalities about their target population, millennials in this case, they're going to succeed because the more complex it gets, the harder it's going to be to compete. And if you're not paying attention, you're not going to be serving your target audience very well. 
just a couple other things. This one you've probably heard before. They're called digital natives. Um, so I, being an older millennial, I tend to not quite follow fall into this. I didn't have the internet when I was really young. I did get it in elementary school. But most people who are millennials have grown up with the internet. They do not know a world without the internet. They do not know a world without computers. Some of the younger ones do not know a world without tablets and smartphones and laptops and things like that as well. So that's just another mindset thing. They have always been connected since the time they were a little kid. I think about my daughter and uh, what that's going to be like for her generation. She can already operate an iPad or an iPhone, no problem. She's not even two years old, and she can open it up, unlock it, find the app she wants, navigate to what she wants to watch, switch the app, go to a different one. She can do the double-click thing on the home button to bring it up and scroll through the apps that were previously opened. It's incredible. I, I never taught her how to use one of those devices. She just learned how to do it. So if you think about that, take that and extend it out you know, 15, 20 years. What's she going to be like? She grew up using these devices. They are completely second nature to her. So there's a ton of other statistics, ones about multitasking and things like that. But um, on the device note there, uh, one of the statistics was that 90% of millennials own a smartphone and 53% own a tablet. I think that one, if you're creating any kind of content, you have to pay attention to that statistic. 90% of millennials own a smartphone and 53% own a tablet. So if you're not creating whatever your content is so that it's mobile friendly, you're kidding yourself because that's how they're accessing it. That's how I access most of the stuff. I only use a laptop for very specific purposes where I need to have the bigger screen and the keyboard. Most of the rest of the time, I either use a tablet. Most of the time, though, I use a smartphone. And I think that's what the statistics are showing us is what most millennials do. So if you have content that you're trying to get out there or you have a storefront, you'd better make sure that it is mobile friendly or else you're missing a huge population. But back to the question I posed earlier, what can we do about the apparent disloyalty among millennials. What do we do about that? It's a huge challenge. Um, You think you've got them, you think that they are engaged, and then suddenly they leave. Well, from the research I did, it seems to mostly stem from the fact that they have a consumer mindset. So if you want to think about that in other terms, it's that most things to millennials, just with the way they've grown up, with having the internet and having lots of options and technology that they grew up with, Everything is quid pro quo. What can this thing do for me? So colleges are struggling with this because education isn't a privilege to a lot of millennials. They see it as something that they're paying for, that they're paying for a degree. They're not paying for the opportunity to attend school. They're paying for their bachelor's degree. And so they have certain expectations and they look at their professors and the administrators at the college as the service provider who owes them, the consumer, something. So If you're from an older generation, you're probably shaking your head right now saying, that's crazy. What is wrong with these kids? It doesn't matter. It really doesn't. There's nothing you're going to do to change that. That is the mindset of the generation, and we just have to respond to it. We have to figure out how we will work with that, and what opportunities does that create? What challenges does it create? And how do we deal with those? So one of the insights, one of the implications that comes from that is that millennials in general, again, generality here, have an extremely low tolerance for anything that's slow, anything that's inefficient, anything that doesn't work right. And if you're a millennial, you're probably shaking your head saying, yeah, that's totally me. I know it is for me. When I'm using my iPhone, if an app starts to slow down or if an app crashes, I want to chuck that thing across the room. Like I get irrationally angry when technology doesn't work or if a website freezes up 
or just doesn't work. Like they, they tell me to click on a certain button, I click on it, nothing happens. I want to just rip the laptop in half. I just cannot explain why that frustrates me so much. But it was funny to read that as an insight about millennials is that they have this very low tolerance for anything that doesn't work right. And it's because they've grown up with technology that does work well, and they've had lots of options. And I know that's true for me, that if you don't like the camera app on your iPhone, then something about it frustrates you, you pull it up and you've got 50 camera apps you can choose from and find one that meets your needs better. Or if you don't like um, the way a certain store online works, it's just a click away to go to a different one. You don't like how Zappo is working, just go to DSW. No big deal. Switch over from one to the other and you can buy wherever it, it seems to be working at the time. So I think that's the appropriate way to look at the disloyalty is not necessarily that, that they're just these sleazy people or lazy people or something that just have no morals and, and can't show loyalty to anybody. It's that they have grown up with lots of options, lots of choices, and ease in switching between those. So substitution has been very easy for a millennial from the time that they were little. So again, this isn't something that it matters to try to figure out and decide whether that's good or bad. It just is. It's the way it is. It's the way culture is. It's not just the way millennials are. It's actually the way Gen X and baby boomers are becoming, if they're not already, because it's the shift in culture. Because now baby boomers and and uh, Gen Xers have been using technology for years and years, and they're having the same experiences as millennials. So they're becoming more impatient with technology and, and learning about having lots of options and substitutions as well. So what do we do with that? What do you do with the fact that substitution is such a big deal and leads to people switching services, switching brands, whatever? I think there's two things. One, you need to look at your own service or your own product or your own offering, whatever it is. You need to look long and hard and say, what is it about what I do or what I offer that could be frustrating? What's slow? What doesn't work well? What are people angry about? What causes people to jump? You need to take a look at that and say, how can I fix it? How could I make it faster? And st stop worrying about whether you should have to make it faster or you should have to make it work a different way. If you want to compete, you've just got to do it. You have to because as soon as it doesn't work the way they think it should, they're gone and they're probably not coming back. So you have to constantly monitor your own product, your own offering, the way you do things and look for how am I being slow? How am I frustrating people? How am I doing things inefficiently where someone else could come in and do it better? That's a, a key thing to take away. Number two is the flip side of it. So if you want to think about some of the big competitors out there, let's say you're a wedding photographer and there is a huge competitor in your local area. How could I ever compete? They have all these people with tons of experience. They've got way better equipment than I do. What am I going to do? How in the world could I compete with that person? This is your opportunity because I guarantee there is something that big guy does that is frustrating to a millennial and frustrating to any other generation as well. There's something they're slow about. There's something that they do that just seems a little sleazy or some policy they have that's a little too rigid and people just get frustrated with it. There's something inefficient about their process. That is your opportunity. That's your opportunity. Look for the inefficiency. Look for where they're slow. Look for where they're driving someone away. Look for when you're using a product. Where do you get frustrated? Where do you give up on something? That's an opportunity. And that's the way it works today. If you've heard of disruptive innovation, this is what it's all about. 
So again, disruptive innovation is one of those things that it's a hot topic because it can be viewed as good or bad. Is it just flashbang without creating a lot of value long term? I don't know. Maybe. But it's reality. And this is what companies like Uber do. They find an inefficiency in the transportation market and they capitalize on it and they create an easy experience that makes it enjoyable to use your smartphone to hail a cab. That's all they did. And they've done it well. And they've had their ups and downs, and Lyft has done the same thing, and so there's competition there. But they disrupted because they found something that made millennials first turn away, and now other people are following. So baby boomers, Gen Xers are also using uh, services like Uber and Lyft. But if you noticed, millennials led the way because they're the ones that are the first to get frustrated and the first to turn away, and now they're the biggest generation. They're the biggest part of the marketplace. So what could you do? Uh, I mentioned the wedding photographer one. I think of someone like Amanda Wright, who was the first interview that I did on this podcast. Uh, she could have gone head to head with someone like Hallmark or you know one of these big card producers. But instead, she saw something that frustrated people. They wanted cards that were edgy, that were funny, that were well-made, that were handmade, and she filled that need. And she was able to pull people away who would normally buy cards at a big box store. And instead, they're buying from her website because she's capitalizing on something that frustrated them about other cards. Uh, I think you could think about musicians. I think about how often mu musicians change now. How quickly do people get tired of musicians because they sound the same or because they did something that annoyed them? That's your advantage. Find a niche. Jump in there and find something. Find an area where they're frustrated and, and fill a need. So... I could go on and on. I think you can fill in the gaps yourself there. But the question I have for you is, what do you have to lose? If you're the little guy right now or little gal, whatever um, you want to define yourself as, if you don't have all the resources and you don't have people working for you or you're just smaller than your competitors and you're thinking, how could I ever break into this market or how could I ever grow what I'm doing? What have you got to lose? Jump in, try it, try to be disruptive, try to fill a need or try to capitalize on a weakness that someone else has somewhere where they're slow, somewhere where they're inefficient and just try it out. The worst you can do is fail and move on and, and try something else. So that's my encouragement to you today is find the place where they're slow, find the place where someone is inefficient and frustrating and creating disloyalty and gain some loyal followers for yourself. Okay, well, that's all the time I have for this week. As always, if you have any comments, stories, or questions, I would love to hear them. Uh, feel free to post them on the Upload Podcast Facebook page. You can just search for the Upload Podcast or just send me a direct message. And you can also see the show notes at MikeGrozier.com. I'll also put at the end of the show notes, I'll put some links to the uh, millennial research that I did. I'm not going to share all of the resources because there's a billion of them and I don't want to type them up, but I'll put some of them out there so that you can enjoy those. Uh, especially check out the one from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. It's a really good summary, goes over things at a good high level and will point you to some of the other research articles. But until next time, as always, I hope you take a risk and move from dreaming to doing. <laughs>